Welcome to the Grim Tidings Podcast, your podcast for all things grimdark, tribal fantasy. I am your host, Rob Matheny. With me is author Philip Overby and blogger Ross Evans. How's it going today, gentlemen? Doing great. Very good. Excellent. Well, I am excited. Uh, we've got a very cool show in store for our listeners today. Um, our guest is a self-described author, teacher, and dedicated dreamer, hailing from Kentucky, but he now calls California home. When he's not teaching, he's writing badass epic fantasy, including the books of the Shaper trilogy and his newest title, The Testament of Tall Eagle, which drops June 8th by our good friends at Ragnarok Publications. In addition, our guest writes dark fantasy short fiction. Titles include The Revelations of Zhang. That's not it, though. In addition, his short fiction has appeared in numerous publications. And what the hell? He also writes comic books about zombies and Cthulhu. He wrote an epic fantasy graphic novel titled Primordia. The Grim Tidings podcast gladly welcomes John R. Fultz to the show, Graham. John, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Yeah, you're our first official, like, published, real deal, Holyfield uh, fantasy author to join us on the program. So we are uh, delighted that you would um, have both the bravery and the courage to uh, join us on the show. And hopefully the train won't fall off the tracks too many times as we're going about the the recording process tonight. But we are uh, definitely thankful for joining us uh, on the program uh, today. I'm like your Bill Murray. Um, David Letterman's first guest was Bill Murray. So I'm like your Bill Murray. You are the Bill Murray of the Grim Tidings podcast. All right. So we can definitely jump in and talk about uh, your newest title. It's something that I'm personally very excited about, essentially when I saw the first sort of headlines when it was called uh, a tribal fantasy title. I've never really heard anything like that, so um, I'm excited that it's something new and different because I myself, I like fantasy that kind of gets away from the medieval Europe tropes that we've been exposed to for decades on end. So can you just give us an idea about the Testament of Tall Eagle, kind of how it came together and what, what it's about? What happened was um, I was doing the books of the Shaper, which was more what you might call traditional type epic fantasy. And I really wanted to step away from those tropes and try something different. And I've always been fascinated with um, uh, Native American culture. And I wanted to really explore that. So I did some research and I came up with the, the idea for taking an alternate look at what really happened in the past. Um, the novel takes, uh, takes place around 1700. And this was when the, the French and Europe, uh, French and uh, English traders were were making some headway in trading with the native tribes. Um, but there was there weren't really any colonies yet. Uh, there were no European colonies yet. But there were um, Spanish conquistadors coming up from Mexico, which they had totally conquered, and trying to conquer the Southwest, which turned out to be a lot harder than they thought it would be. So I, I asked myself, you know. When the, when the Native American tribes came in contact with European culture, it, it basically resulted in 100 years of warfare, disease, and eventually decimation, if not total annihilation. So I thought, what if one of these tribes came in contact with a culture that wasn't of our world, but was from a fantastical, what we would consider a fantastical world? How would that have changed that tribe's existence? And could it have been a key to avoiding the genocide that, you know, um, that was, that happened to most Native American tribes. Um, and so that's, that's the seed that grew into Tall Eagle. And what it, what it allowed me to do was go back into the, um, historical era and add fantasy elements in a way that really it does defy the tro- the tropes of traditional fantasy. 
as you mentioned, um, traditional fantasy usually draws from like a pseudo medieval European type background. And this fantasy is grown from, I say it's grown from distinctly American roots. It grows from North American mythology and history and history. So that I think gives it its unique flavor. Yeah. I have to say that's definitely a, a refreshing take on fantasy. And, uh, I did have a chance to read the uh, first chapter excerpt, okay. uh, um, that's up at the Black Gate. If anybody wants to head over there and read it right now, it is an awesome uh, first peek into this uh, Tall Eagle saga that you have uh, put together. Now, is this going to be a single title, or this is this a trilogy, or what are your plans with this series? Right now, it is a standalone book. And yeah, it's funny because I've been hearing from a lot of people online, hey, I'm so glad this is a single fantasy, a single book fantasy. There seems to be a little bit of weariness out there on the part of fantasy fans that they have to always read a giant series. And a lot of them are crying out for a one, a one shot book. Like, wow, a standalone novel in the fantasy realm. That's more rare than I thought it was. So could there be more tall Eagle books? It is a possibility. We'll see how the first one does. And I have ideas, of course, but it is intended as a standalone book. Testament of tall Eagle could either be standalone or it could be the beginning of, uh, you know, it could be the beginning of more tall Eagle books, and I don't want to give too much away, but there's a new situation at the end of the first book that could lend itself to more exploration. So, um, yeah, we'll just see how it goes. Um, when I did my first trilogy, it was because I had written the first novel, Seven Princes, and the publisher wanted three books because they buy them in threes. You know, they, they like to market in threes and fours and five. They like trilogies and above. And so they were like, great book. Can you do two more? And I was like, yeah, of course. And so I wanted to kind of get away from that. You know, in, in epic fantasy, which is what the Books of the Shaper is, you have a lot of different viewpoints mixing together throughout the story, which makes it more epic because you have all these different viewpoints. In Tall Eagle, I wanted to bring it down to earth a little bit so that the, the voice of Tall Eagle is a single narrator. Um, this young Native American who ends up being named Tall Eagle uh, is narrating the whole story. So I think it's more of an intimate experience. Actually, one thing I'm really interested in in fantasy that uh, I notice specifically with grimdark fantasy is it tends to be moving away from uh, the more fantastical elements of fantasy, and it's kind of focusing more on you know humans interacting with humans. Um, one thing I saw you had posted a picture where I believe Tall Eagle is uh, fighting some kind of like giant centipede-looking thing. Yeah, uh, I thought that was really cool looking. I'm I'm curious, like, what kind of monsters maybe that you have in your story? Could you give us like a teaser of what some things may appear? The whole thing about the grimdark phenomenon is that you're you're totally right there. A lot of grimdark authors they want to keep the fantastical elements to a minimum. They want to focus on the realism and the, and the human interaction. When I did uh, Books of the Shaper, I wanted to do that too, but I wanted to crank the magic to eleven. So. I think that you don't have to throw the magic out the door in order to get into, you know, good character development, good uh, dark takes on, you know, how people really feel and really act. And, you know, George R. Martin keeps his magic to the minimum. You know, he keeps, even when he does give you dragons, there are three tiny little dragons that take years and volumes to grow. That's a great example. That's a great example of his approach to magic overall, tiny dragons. But I like big giant fucking dragons that will eat you. So, even though there's only one dragon that appears in my trilogy, it's, and it's not a major plot point, I do have uh, giants and things like that. Back to your original question. In Tall Eagle, I did bring the magic down a little bit, because in the Books of the Shaper, I wanted 
the magic to be the most, not the most important thing, but I wanted it to be ever present. I wanted it to, it's very crucial, you know, because I like writing about wizards and sorcerers. I wanted to pull back from that with Tall Eagle, but there is still a lot of fantastic stuff going on and fantastical stuff going on. Um, and one of the, one of the things that I found out doing my research is the, um, ancient American tribes, North American tribes lived in a magical world. They believed that magic was everywhere. They believed that magic manifested itself in the form of nature and they believed everything had a soul. And they went out, like, for example, in the first chapter, the one that's posted at blackgate.com, it's all about a young Native American going out to find his vision quest to find his magic, basically, um, to, commune with the spirits by fasting and basically suffering alone in the wilderness for a few days. And in so doing, earning the title of manhood and, and maybe earning a new name, uh, his, his man name, uh, as opposed to his boy name. So going out into this world that the tribes saw as magical, they had a very unique way of looking at the world where everything from the rocks to the rivers to the sky and the clouds, it's all magical. So that's all there. But on top of that, I wanted to throw in some, I guess you would call meta magical elements, some stuff that comes in from another reality. So we have a, um, in the, in the first chapter, Tall Eagle discovers uh, a gleaming city on, on the top of a mountain and he's never even seen a city before. They don't exist in his world, but he discovers this gleaming fantastical city on top of a mountain and these giant eagles that are flying all around it. Now he of course assumes that the great eagle spirit has led him here and shown him this. And his shaman, when he gets back home, assumes this is a vision. You know, it's interpreted. Whatever you went out and did on your vision quest was obviously a vision, and that gives you your name. So because of this experience, which his shaman interprets as a vision, he's called, his, he earns the name Tall Eagle. Well, later he goes back to the mountain and finds out that it, it wasn't a vision at all. It was very, very real. So you have giant eagles. There's also something strange. You mentioned the picture of the, the centipede-looking creature. Um, there's a there's a creature that is stalking the wilderness where um, Tall Eagle's tribe um, does their hunting and, and does their living. And um, this creature turns out to be a, a night devil of some kind. So they have to, his tribe has to come to, to grips with facing this thing and the fact that there may be more than one of them out there. So Tall Eagle kind of goes back to the mountain looking for answers. Like, what are these devils? And do they have anything to do with the strange city on the mountaintop? He finds out a lot of stuff that completely opens his mind in a way that probably was akin to the way early Native Americans' minds were opened when they discovered the presence of the Europeans coming in and riding horses and using uh, metal and using gunpowder and things like that, but in a more fantastic way. So we've got these night creatures. We've got these giant eagles. There are some other strange things that happen in the book. I don't want to give anything away too much. I don't know if I'm the only one, but I totally pictured uh, Tremors when you were talking about that. Yeah, that? Tremors was a fun movie. I remember that. The giants yeah. underground and they would burst out. These are creatures called the Vothgear, and they are they only come out at night. And basically, um, I don't want to give away too much, but there is sort of a problem that elements from another world have been have been brought into our world that weren't supposed to be. And so that creates this tension and this eventual alliance between Tall Eagles people and the people who are here from this other reality. And it, it all has to do with these creatures that are slipping into our world. You mentioned you're not really interested in doing, or or maybe maybe you are interested in the future of doing other stories in this world. Yeah. I'm kinda, I kind of like the way Joe, uh, Joe Abercrombie approaches 
some of his stories where he does new stories of different characters in the same world. Would you consider maybe doing uh, other stories in this world that don't follow Tall Eagle and maybe follow some secondary characters or, or like a different aspect of the world? Absolutely. Um, that would be a lot of fun for me. And I have this idea in my mind for, I don't know if this will ever happen, but for a book called Son of Tall Eagle, <laughs> because it's just a classic title. I love the title. Um, I would love to like go ahead a generation. There's also a character near the, in the third act of this book, Tall Eagle, who makes a strange transformation, a strange journey, and believes that he's dead. He believes that he has died and gone on to another reality. Well, everyone around him is telling him, you survived. You were wounded, but you know, we brought you back and you survived and we're in a different place now. But this character insists that he's dead and that everybody around him is dead and doesn't know it. And they're all like, no, we're all alive. And he's like, no, we're all dead. So he goes off into the wilderness, you know, to explore this land of the dead that he feels that he's in. And I wanted to do a whole novel about that character. And like, what happened to that character when he goes off on his own, thinking that he's dead and in the world of the dead? And, and I thought that would be a good idea. So that's an idea that I have. And also the idea to come back and follow one of Tall Eagle's heirs at mm -hmm. some point. So, yeah, that's the whole thing about a good setup. A good setup, you can take it in, you know, 20, 30 different directions. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a cool world to kind of come back to. So, like, even if you didn't do a sequential series, it would still be cool to, like, jump around maybe different parts of the world or Absolutely. to see things through different characters and stuff like that. Absolutely, because um, in the first novel is really grounded in history, and there's a transition involved to, to a more fantastical world. So if I come back with for a second volume, I don't really have to rely on history as much now because I've established a foothold in another world, in a more fantastical world. So it's almost like, you know, I can go back to Tall Eagle without going back to 1700s North America. But I don't want to say too much more than that because it might give away the end. So, John, my question, uh, you, you've mentioned uh, tribes and stuff, and I'm wondering, are we going to get to see more than... Uh, just Tall Eagle's tribe, because I do know um, the one book that I kind of thought of was uh, Cormac McCarthy's uh, Blood Meridian. Um, and I don't know if you've read that one, but it's it it's kind of a darker take on some of the Native American tribes. I know um, some of the stereotypes are that they were all peaceful, but, um, you know, there actually was some pretty uh, savage uh, tribes that would, you know, scalp and do some kind of grim dark stuff so i'm wondering are, are you going to explore some of that uh maybe the darker side of some of that native american culture uh oh yeah definitely that's part of the fun with the testament of Eagle is that you get immersed in this world of pre-colonial tribes and they had a lot of um conflict you know um i did a lot of research um my primary source of research was a book called comanches uh, by th Ferenbach. And it's a very um, well-regarded uh, scholarly piece of work uh, about a, a guy who really studied the Comanches. And not only the Comanches, but the tribes that migrated from the northern Rocky Mountains that eventually became the Comanches. So in Tall Eagle, I'm not writing about the Comanches, but I'm writing about a tribe that could have been the ancestors of the Comanches. I didn't want to do a, a real tribe. And a fiction, I wanted to do a fictional tribe but very much rooted in the real history of tribal life, which led to the Comanches, you know, a hundred years later. So um, ruling the plains. So there, there are enemy tribes that Tall Eagle's tribe has to deal with um, because these tribes were very territorial and their version of war isn't what we would think of as war. 
you know, civilized, unquote, if there is such a thing as civilized war. But they were more like, okay, we're going to raid this other settlement. Those are our enemies. We're going to go raid them. And then, of course, one raid begats another raid. Okay, they raided us last summer. We're going to raid them now. You know, and it's all about getting scalps, defeating your enemy, bringing captives back to the tribe. And, you know, if you study the history, a lot of this tribal warfare is actually how a lot of tribes replenish their bloodlines because they would bring wives and children from other tribes. And, of course, not every tribe was as, as bloodthirsty and aggressive as, you know, other tribes. You know, people are all different, and so tribes were all different. And so I try to take a very realistic look at how life was back in the pre-colonial era. So you'll definitely see some of that, um, that gritty uh, life out in the mountains and in the, on the plains. And this, this is a tribe that migrates every year. They spend winters in the mountains and they spend summers on the plains hunting buffalo. And so you'll see some buffalo hunting, you'll see some tribal warfare, you'll see some tribal divisions that begin. The tribal councils were a lot of fun to write. And I think it's got everything that a Native American adventure fan would want, as well as everything that like a fantasy fan. So yeah, there is a lot of that. I don't know if you want to call it the grim dark side, uh, but I guess that's as good a term as any to put it. Uh, the grim dark side of being a Native American back in the day when you know, it was all survival and, you know, it was the tribes were battling for survival and battling for land. And there wasn't this idea of, hey, I own this land. You know, you can't take it from me. It was more about longstanding grudges and it was more about, okay, those people are traditionally our enemies. And it's not like the wars were scheduled, but if one person were to perform some kind of a great feat other people would rally around that person. And if that person wanted to go raid an enemy, then they, the men would probably be all up for that. So they didn't have any set warlords or generals or armies, but if one person could rise up, they were very much freedom-based cultures. And if one person could rise up and show that they were exceptional, then that person could easily lead a war party. And one of the things I like to explore in the book is how war is a cycle. It's a circle, the circle of war. Tall Eagle refers to it at one point. And Tall Eagle's exposure to this fantastical culture, a culture of literature, a culture of higher thought, a culture of mystical powers and things like that, it expands his mind to the point where he starts questioning his own people's way of life and wondering, is there a better way to live than this constant cycle of war? So that's part of what I'm playing with uh, with this story is, you know, societies change because one because of one visionary, usually. One visionary person comes along and sees, hey, let's break this cycle of whatever it is that's not working for us, leading us to destruction, and let's, let's go in a different direction. And that's kind of what Tali was. He's sort of a catalyst for his people, the way that the mystical city on the mountain, or the, the, the mountain on top of the mountain, as he calls it, the way that was a catalyst for his, uh, for his consciousness to develop. There's some torture, too, uh, because they did occasionally torture, well, not occasionally, but kind of on a regular basis. You know, when you captured an enemy... The enemy was supposed to show how great he was by taking your torture and laughing at you. <laughs> so there's a little bit of that going on in there, too. We're talking tribal fantasy with our guest, John R. Faltz. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll dive more into the topic and look at a little bit more of the world building of uh, John's new book, The Testament of Tall Eagle. So stay with us. We'll be right back right here on the Grim Tidings podcast. We'll be right back. Yeah. Thank you. 
The Witch of the Sands, book one of the Hounds of the North by Peter Fugazzato, a novella launching a new grimdark fantasy series for fans of Joe Abercrombie, Robert E. Howard, and David Gamel. Shield Sklimmon captured his prize, the bloody head of a desert chieftain, but despite the promise of desperately needed coins, the aging swordsman is disturbed. After two decades of hunting down deadly witches and warlocks for the Dunham Empire, Shield and his ruthless band of mercenary Northmen have been reduced to common bounty hunters in the burning sands of Hoft. Even worse, S.H.I.E.L.D. can no longer pursue his consuming vengeance against the magic wielders who murdered his father. On top of that, S.H.I.E.L.D. is haunted by a vision of Birgit Wordswallow, the witch he once loved. So when S.H.I.E.L.D. and his sword brothers are called away from the chaotic pillaging of the last walled city to hunt down a witch, S.H.I.E.L.D. thinks things might take a turn for the better. But hunting a witch is never as simple as it seems. The Witch of the Sands by Peter Fugazzato Get your free copy. Go to peterfugazzato.com. That's Peter, F-U-G-A-Z-Z-O-T-T-O dot com. Step into the dark worlds of Peter Fugazzato. Get your free copy today at peterfugazzato.com. Welcome back to the Grim Tidings Podcast, your podcast for all things grimdark. We are talking tribal fantasy with our guest, John R. Fultz. And John, I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about the world building that you have set up for your new book, The Testament of Tall Eagle. Now, with your previous trilogy, it was, you know, dark epic fantasy. Could you tell me a little bit about how the world building differed um, from writing your epic fantasy trilogy and then the world building that you used in writing uh, The Testament of Tall Eagle? Sure, yeah. Um, this time I started with research serious research into right around the era of 1700 is where the book takes place. North America. Uh, I started um, doing research into Native American tribal lifestyle at that time. And I've always been fascinated by it. So I couldn't help but be inspired when I read about how these tribes used to live and the world that they inhabited. So I wanted to really capture the lifestyle of these tribes. And I wanted to drop into that mix like create a very grounded, believable world of of these tribes, of the world they lived in, and then drop into that mix more traditional type fantasy elements and just see how that blended together. And so the thing about the world of Tall Eagle is it starts off in our in our world, albeit our world of three hundred years ago. Pre colonial is what I always call it. But the thing is there's a there's a culture from an entirely different world. Call it another dimension. That that, that isn't quite specified, but there is a uh, a culture that comes from another world that involves mystical powers and a form of magic, which I never use the word sorcery in this book. I, I was all about the sorcery in Books of the Shaper, and I wanted to get away from sorcerers and wizards. So we do have people called dreamers in this book, and they're part of the strange society that Tall Eagle uh, discovers. And they have this thing they do called dreaming which to us would be considered magic or sorcery. They just call it dreaming. And uh, it, it achieves, it's a way to warp reality to your own designs by dreaming when you're awake. If you can dream something hard enough, you can make it reality. That's sort of the concept behind the dreamers, the dreamers of Marinu, who Tall Eagle meets. So what I had was a well-established historical world, and then I, I brought in elements from another world that's completely fictional and completely fantastical. So I guess you'd say there was less world building here, but then again, really not, because I had to really research and do my best to bring the real world of 1700 
North American plains to life. So I guess you'd say this world building that I did is way closer to history than it was to fantasy. Whereas with Books of the Shaper, we're talking an entirely fantastical world, uh, which I built, you know, from the ground up with long, long eons of history that, you know, that kind of thing. So the world building wasn't that, wasn't that difficult with Tall Eagle. It was my chance to go back, you know, go back to tribal days and, and see what it was like to be in a tribe uh, living on the, on the wide American plains back in the day or in the mountains. And the world building, I think, really kind of takes a spin towards the end because you get to see, you get to see some of this other world that Tall Eagle discovers. You get a glimpse into this other world. And so that's where I got to fire my fantasy jets a little bit. You know, I got to bring in some really wild stuff. But most of it takes place in the North America around 1700. So it was a different experience than building an entire fantasy world from scratch. Now, you've been featuring a lot of interesting uh, artwork, actually some pretty badass artwork, uh, uh, sporadically in your various posts and things, uh, ramping up for the release here. Now, is this uh, artwork that is going to be included in the uh, the release? Yeah, um, the, the cover is a, an amazing painting done by Alex Raspid, an, an, a Russian artist. And there are also three interior illustrations done by Oksana Dmitrienko. We did the three interior illustrations, and those will be included in the book. My idea at first was I asked Joe at Ragnarok, hey, can we um, get some promotional pieces, you know, that we could use when we promote the book? And he was like, yes, I have this artist, and I'm just looking for a new assignment for her. And um, I didn't expect her to do pieces that were going to be included in the book, but that turned out to be a bonus. So not only will you get a gorgeous cover, but you get the three illustrated pieces that um, show three different scenes from the book. You already mentioned the piece with the monster, and um, there's also the piece that appears over at Black Gate with the first chapter, which shows Tall Eagle discovering the magical city, uh, the, the mountain atop the mountain. And then there's a third piece that shows another climactic moment from later in the book. Are you guys a fan of those interior illustrations? Like, personally, I love them, and I wish more fantasy books especially. I wish they kind of featured it more often, but oh, yeah. I'm wondering. Uh, I could see the flip side, too, where... You know, some people like to have their own image of the characters, and then when they see it, it, it might ruin it for them. But, yeah, personally, I, I, I totally dig those interior illustrations. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's like a throwback to the 60s and 70s, you know, the and the and before, the classic books, where you would have, like, Frank Rosetta doing a sketch at the beginning, and then a few sketches in the middle, or uh, somebody like Roy Crinkle, or uh, who are some of the other guys? Um, there's so many of them that they, they used to do that a lot. You know, they used to at least put um, one picture at the beginning of the book, you know, uh, to get yeah. more interested. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I would like to see more of that happening. And, um, I know that Stephen King went back and had a lot of his dark tower books. They did illustrated versions of those. Yeah. I, I think uh, Sanderson has some uh, interior illustrations too, but it's funny. You mentioned uh Frazetta. I know, um, I know you're a big fan. So am I. I, I freaking love uh, Frank Frazetta um, and all his work. But they're my favorite uh, artist since I was seven years old. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, my dad had the uh, old school Conan books with the Frazetta covers, oh, and that's best. yeah, yeah. That's kind of my earliest memory of uh, fantasy. Was my dad reading those uh, just like old school paperbacks with the uh, you know. Those Frazetta covers, I love them. Yeah, one of my one of the best compliments I ever got for um, Seven Princes was um, Charlie Jane Andrews over at io9.com said, 
you kind of wish Rosetta was still alive just so he could illustrate some scenes from this book. And I was like, yeah, oh, this person gets it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a pretty cool compliment right there. Yeah, I know, I too, uh, this is totally off topic, but um, the Fire and Ice movie, I hope it I hope it happens. I know you're excited for that, too. And Rob and Phil, I don't know if you guys know about it, but Fire and Ice was this, uh, was it in the 80s? I want to say it was the 80s. Um, yeah, it was early uh, 80s. Uh, Ralph Bakshi and Frank Rosetta. Yeah, it's just a classic uh, cartoon. It's like an animated film, and uh, it kicks ass. And supposedly... Uh, they're going to try to do a uh, live action uh, remake. And if done correctly, like that could be absolutely just out of this world. Awesome. I agree. And, you know, the original is one of my favorite films and I always thought it was very, very underrated, but it's the closest thing we ever got to having Frazetta do an animated movie. The whole movie looks like a Frazetta painting. Like every scene looks like a living Frazetta painting. It is pretty awesome. It's got that whole sword and sorcery thing going on. It's got really good writing and acting, and the animation is gorgeous. I have the restored DVD uh, that came out with the pictures all remastered and everything. It's fantastic. And now Robert Rodriguez, who brought Frank Miller's work to life in the Sin City movies, is bringing the new Fire and Ice to life. And so I think it's going to be a little more CGI, a little more you know photo real type approach. But I hope yeah. it's a success. I hope it's a big success because I'd love to see more Fire and Ice. I'd like to see Fire and Ice comics and novels, and heck, I'd like to write one. You know, it would be awesome. Yeah, toys too. I, I would totally get some toys. Of course, I would. I would claim it's for my son, but I totally. <laughs> and so, Testament of Tall Eagle is uh, being released by Ragnarok Publications, and they're good friends of ours. Uh, they just had the Blackguards uh, anthology released, and that features a lot of really cool artwork uh, for each short story in that collection. Now, could you talk a little bit about how you uh, came into contact with Ragnarok Publications and how that relationship started and how they became your publisher for this new title? Absolutely. Uh, it's a great story. Um, I went to the University of Kentucky uh, back in 80, 88 to 91, graduated in 91. And at that time, I lived in the dorm for one year before I moved out. And in the dorm, I met a guy, a really great, funny guy named Kenny Soward. And Ken and I used to hang out. We played some Call of Cthulhu. We were kind of like cool nerds. You know, we didn't really go out and party. We just hung around the dorm, did our work, and, you know, watched, late night, watched David Letterman and, uh, you know, hung out. And we tried to get a band going because Kenny, Kenny was a drummer and I was a guitar player. But he was from Cincinnati and I was from a small town in Kentucky. And we were there in Lexington. And uh, we, we became pretty good friends. And then when I moved out of the dorm, I never saw Kenny again for like 25 years, 25, 30 years. <laughs> and so a couple of years ago, I'm online doing my thing, and I discover the Gnome Saga, book one, by Kenny Sauer. And I said, that name sounds so familiar. Well, I looked into it and found out it's my old buddy Kenny, who's also a fantasy writer. And at, by this time, all three of my books were out, my, my fantasy trilogy. And so... um Got in touch with Kenny and was like, hey, dude, what's up? So we, we had a, uh, what do you call it, reunion there, kind of virtual reunion. Shortly after that, Kenny took his book to Ragnarok. And so when my Orbit trilogy was done, I was looking for my next thing. What am I going to do? I wanted I want to get Tall Eagle out here. Well, for Orbit, Tall Eagle, it's not an epic fantasy. You know, it's got one viewpoint character. It, it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have um, giant world-shaking armies, you know, the way Books of the Shaper does. So it wasn't quite epic fantasy enough for Orbit. And I said, you know what? It's got to come out some way. It's, 
it's going to come out some way. And so I started looking around for, um, for another way to get it published. And that's when I realized, boy, Ragnarok is putting it. Not only did the Ragnarok put out Kenny's book, but, um, they redesigned it and they put out his whole trilogy, the gnome saga. And, uh, they were putting out other cool books. So I said, Hey, look, they're, they're looking for submissions. So while my agent did his thing with, you know, the big publishers and, you know, all the, you know, you have to wait forever to hear back something from your agent. It's just kind of the way it is. You can't rush these things. I said, why don't I get off my ass and just go out there and find a publisher myself? So I contacted Ragnarok through Kenny and I asked Kenny, you know, Hey, what do you think about working with these guys? He had nothing but good things to say with them. So when I contacted him, I sent him the Tall Eagle manuscript and, uh, Tim Markwitz called me back in, I think it was November and said, you know, really like the book. would love to publish it. And so I got my agent uh, on the phone and we made it happen. And I'm really glad to be there because I'm starting to discover the differences between working with a major publisher and an indie publisher. And there are some really nice things about working with an indie publisher. Um, you get a lot more creative control over what things like the cover looks like, how the book in general gets marketed. You get a lot more, I don't want to say personalized service, but you get a lot more personal interaction with the people that run the, the company. You know, with Orbit, it's this massive corporation. And, you know, I have an editor, but then my editor has an editor. And then there's like a managing, you know, there's a managing editor and there's a publisher. And, you know, it's very corporate. And sometimes you can feel like you're being forgotten, you know, in all the other mad corporate things that are going on. But working with an indie publisher, you not only get to deal with people more, but they're more open to ideas that don't fit the mainstream. Like I was saying, Orbit wasn't that crazy about Tall Eagle because it wasn't another Books of the Shaper. You know, it's kind of like corporate publishers, they want you to do the same thing over and over. And from their perspective, that's totally understandable because they want your stuff to keep selling to the people who originally bought it. You know, they don't want you to do something totally different because that's not what they got you for. They want you to do what you do. You know, they, I don't want to say that they always want you to repeat yourself, but they want you to stick within parameters that are comfortable for them. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to write 12 volumes of the books of the shaper. You know, I wanted to do three and get out. And so I wanted to go on and tackle other challenges. And what I'm realizing with, with indie publications, they will take a look at something that and publish things that would never fit into the mainstream. Tall Eagle is a great example because it's kind of an oddball combination of native American adventure and uh, epic fantasy or what you might call heroic fantasy, dark fantasy. It's all rolled into one there. So it's really great to be working with Ragnarok, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be there. I have a, I have a question about uh, publishing in general. People that may be listening may be new, new to writing or may be interested in publishing in the future. Some may consider self-publishing or some may consider trying to get an agent. What would you suggest uh, for people who are new to publishing to be a good path or to know when they're ready to publish. The knowing when you're ready, that's the hard part. Yeah. Me, I wrote short stories for many, many, many years before I decided to tackle novels. In college, that was the late 80s, I was writing short stories and sending them off to Weird Tales magazine, my favorite magazine of all time. And I kept getting rejections, but I also got really good editorial feedback from Daryl Schweitzer, who was writing the book at that time, running the magazine at that time, along with George Skithers. So Daryl would always send me these really polite rejections and tell me what to work on. And since I was a huge fan of Daryl's fiction, I was like, wow, you can't get a better mentor than this. So it took me 15 years. I'm not even kidding you. It took me 15 years from college to the time I was 
about 30 to 35 years old, to finally sell a short story to Weird Tales. Well, I finally did it in 2004. Uh, they bought they bought my story, The Persecution of Artifice the Quill. It ended up running in a Weird Tales 340 in 2005. That success, now before this I had been uh, writing comics and stuff, but to get into that prose market, you know, to write a short story that was worthy of appearing in a magazine and worthy of being paid to publish, it was a long journey for me. Now, I didn't just focus on that during those 15 years. I lived my life, you know. I did a lot of things. I, I did music, you know, I did other things. But I always came back to writing. So after 15 years, I finally figured out, okay, this is what a story needs to get published. That success inspired me to write basically about a dozen other tales set in the same universe, which most of them are collected now in Revelations of Tang, a collection that I put out a couple years ago. So these stories are what really, uh, I cut my teeth on these stories. And even though they were, they were, it was not a novel, there were 12 different stories, they were all set in the same world with overlapping characters. And so I was intended to put them together someday, but when you put a bunch of short stories together like that, it's still not a novel. It's a cycle of stories. And I've always enjoyed reading cycles of stories, from Conan to Fafford and the Grey Mauser uh, to any other, Elric, any other of the great fantasy uh, cycles. But at a certain point, I realized, after about five years of getting my stories published, and believe me, for everyone that got published, there were five or six that didn't get published. Rejection is just a part of a writer's lifeblood. After that, I thought, okay, now that I'm able to actually sell short stories and I have a proven track record, it's time for me to take the next step and write novels. So I, uh, I started researching, you know, buying books on how to write novels and how to get an agent and all that. And basically, my biggest advice is just write it. You know, if you don't, if you're not the kind of person who feels drawn to short stories, then go write to novels because it's been done. People have gotten novel contracts who've never written a short story. It's been done. But my other advice is join a writing group in your area. Get together with people, even if it's only once a month, and share what you've written. Get feedback on it. You'll hear what they're reading and you'll give feedback. That, I think, is the most important thing to do is because you have an audience there for your art and you're getting really good feedback from other writers. And you, it's up to you what you choose to keep. So I would say just start writing, get into a writing group, make it part of your life, enjoy it, have fun with it. And when you feel like you're ready, and you know, when I say that, I mean like when you're reading, when your writing group has gone from being really critical to being like, wow, this is awesome. You may be ready to start that novel or you may be ready to look for an agent. But the number one thing, and this is where most people don't do it, is you got to write the novel. You got to take a blind leap of faith. You got to say, I'm going to write this damn novel. It's going to take me as long as it's going to take me. I will finish it. I will find an agent and a publisher. It will come out. Now, most people who say that are lying to themselves because most people do not get their stuff published. They either get too busy with life. They get too busy raising a family, making, you know, making an income. Whatever happens, their art gets shoved out of their life by life itself. But if you're an oddball enough like me, obsessive enough like me, insane enough, like most writers, you'll stick with it and you'll keep writing because you love writing. And it took me three years to find an agent. When I knew, okay, I'm going to write this book because the book, the books, all the books that I was reading were like, how do you get a, how do you uh, publish a novel? Well, first you have to write it. Don't even go to step two until you've written your entire novel, workshopped it and got it into perfect shape. So I wrote a novel called Child of Thunder. And when I went into my writing group, 
they tore it apart with good reason because I wasn't doing what I needed to do yet. I hadn't yet evolved my mind into the point where I knew how to write a novel yet. And so after a few sessions of getting feedback on the, the novel that I was trying to write, the first few chapters, I, I, actually I wrote the whole novel and the first few chapters I got feedback from. And that's all it took for me to realize. I sort of made this jump in my head. Oh, I see what I'm not doing now and I know what I need to do. So I took the ideas in that novel, Child of Thunder, and I kept them as backstory for the new novel. I jumped 20 years in the future and I wrote Seven Princes. And all the backstory that I use, which will never see the light of day, all of that became the bottom of the iceberg, the iceberg under the water, the, the history, the hidden history, my Silmarillion, if you will. In order to write The Lord of the Rings, uh, there had to be a Silmarillion first to give this world its history and its presence. So I had, I had this, this um, aborted novel's worth of concepts. I jumped 20 years in the future and I wrote Seven Princes, and that's when I finally, I, I guess, got it right. Because when I finished Seven Princes, I started sending it off uh, to various... I've got the, uh, the the book of, you know, what do you call it? Uh, the Writer's Guide to Literary Agents. And I sent queries off to every every agent in the book who handled sci-fi or fantasy. Got a rejection from every single one of them. I started going to um, World Fantasy Convention and sci-fi conventions where, you know, editors and publishers and agents were hanging out. My first goal was, I know I need an agent. Because if you're if you have a novel and you're trying to shop it around to publishers... No one really takes you that seriously, especially big publishers, unless you have an agent. Your agent can open doors. Your agent has contacts. But the first thing is to convince an agent that you are worthy, worth their time. So for three years, I chased agents around. And when I say chase them, I mean sending them manuscripts, meeting with them at cons and such. But it wasn't until a friend of mine, Howard Jones from Blackgate, who's written a few great novels of his own, Desert of Souls is the first one. He was talking to me after we had met up at a con. And was saying, well, if you're look, still looking for uh, an agent, why don't I introduce you to my agent? Because he was a big fan of my work, and he, he figured his agent would be too. So it's kind of like the old saying, it's all who you know. In addition to honing your craft, you got to get out there and network. you got to go to the cons, and, and you got to go to the writing groups. And it's, it is really building up a, a networking contacts list. Um, but I've never been really into that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm like an introvert. I'm at home. But just going out to a few of, the, of these cons, you can meet so many people that are just like you and people that are looking to publish you. So with Howard's help, his agent, he said to his agent, you got to take a look at my buddy John's manuscript. And the age, I sent it off. And this time, a few months later, maybe two or three months later, lo and behold, this time I got a call from the agent saying, really like your book, really would love to re represent you. And I was, I was screaming that day. I was jumping up and down because this was a three-year journey just to find an agent after I had finished writing the book. So I guess the other big factor about what advice would I give is be patient. Be patient. Nothing happens quickly in publishing. It moves glacially slow. Uh, but enjoy the, enjoy the journey. You know, everything you write makes you a better writer. And once you're, these days you might not even need an agent. These days you might be able to publish through Amazon. You might be able to hook up with an indie company. Um, but if you want to try to get the big, the big contracts and work with the big boys, you're going to need an agent. So, you know, just send out your queries, do your homework, get out there and network, but never stop writing. That's the, that's the two things that we have to balance. You know, on one end, we have the creative, the, the creative joy of, the joy of creativity and writing. On the other hand, we have the networking and the business aspects of it. And that's what I love about finally having an agent or what I started to love and, and still love about it is that my agent can handle all the business stuff. So I can just focus on the writing and the creativity. So, 
it's a long journey, but if you love it, you know, go for it. That's my advice. It's great advice. Like I think a lot of, I think I, I meet a lot of people that are kind of on the fence about their writing and, and it is a very, you know, you have to be patient with publishing, especially, and uh, just be ready to suffer defeat and humiliation sometimes and yep. pick yourself back up and keep going. The old saying is you got to build a suit of armor from your rejection slips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's about how it is. I mean, it still hurts when you get a rejection, even if you're a published author, you know, even I'm sure Stephen King, if he ever gets rejected, still hates to get rejected. But you just soak it up and you move on and you realize that sometimes editors are wrong. Sometimes editors just don't share your taste. You know, and some some writers go out of their way to study publications and write write what they know those publications will want to publish. I did that with Weird Tales for 15 years. I, I tried to you know I tried to master the type of fantasy story that that Weird Tales was known to publish. Well. I'm not doing that anymore. I don't chase publications now. I write what I want to write, and if somebody else wants to publish it, that's great. But most of the stories that I write get rejected because I'm not trying to fulfill someone else's set of editorial standards. You know, but if I really wanted to sell short stories, I'd be reading all the magazines and really, you know, getting to know the tone and the and the atmosphere of each magazine. But you know, I'd rather write what I'm interested in writing. So, you know, and if that means that I'm more of a novelist than a short story guy, then that's fine. Because I, you know, I've done short stories and I've even considered giving up short stories before. But after a while, you don't write them. You come back and you realize, yeah, it's kind of fun to write a short story. You know, you live with a novel for usually about a year at a time in your mind and cranking it out. In a short story, you can get a whole, you can get a whole story cranked out in one evening, you know. So I told somebody writing short stories is like one night stands and writing novels is like a relationship. That was a, some great advice. I feel motivated now. I feel like that was yeah, me too. a good halftime speech or something, you know? <laughs> Get in the game, guys. Yeah, yeah. I'm pumped. I did want to ask, though, just briefly, how did you get into uh, writing for comics? I, I feel like that's, uh, it seems, I don't know if it's completely wrong, but I was under the impression that you might have had to have been an established writer and then you get into, like, a comic. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. it sounds... These days, it really, really helps if you're an established writer to get into comics. But how did I get into comics? Through sheer persistence and blind obsession, basically. <laughs> what happened was, um, back in mid-'90s, I, I've always been a comics fanatic. You know, I love, I love comics. And back in the mid... Back in the late-'90s, my marriage started to break up. And I thought, well, I'm going to have a lot more time on my hands. <laughs> so what do I really want to do? And I realized, you know what I really want to do? I want to write a book for Vertigo Comics. And I, and I, so I started looking into that. You know, how do you, how do you write a script? How do you, you know, I started, I went to my first con, my first Comic Con when I was, what, how old was I? I must have been 28 when I went to my first Comic Con, although I grew up reading comics. And, you know, talked to people there, talked to Axel Alonso actually that year, uh, who was very new to, he was working at DC at the time. And he was, his advice was do ash cans, do ash cans which are basically little half-sized comics that you print at Kinko's and you draw yourself. And so I spent a lot of time writing scripts and trying to shop them to uh, editors at comic conventions. But that's not a good way to go. Um, hardly does that ever work. I mean, if you're, a, if you're an artist, you can open a portfolio and blow somebody away and they can go, wow, we need to hire this guy. But if you're a writer, no one cares that you have three, three scripts in your backpack. You know? No one gives a shit that you think you're the next you know, Roy Thomas or whatever. They really don't. They really do not give a shit for writers. 
The only time they give a shit for writers in comics is when you come from another successful writing career. If you come from uh, writing uh, successful crime books or you come from writing successful fantasy books or whatever, then you might get a little respect in comics. But otherwise, there's only one way to get into comics, and that is to do your own comics. And you do your own comics, you take them and you, and you ship them or, you know, you shop them around at these, uh, again, it's networking. At the, you go to every comic con you can. So for a long time, I spent a lot of time and energy looking for artists to work with. And that, I can't tell you how many false starts I've had. It's really hard unless you got a big sack of cash because, hey, you can get anything if you got money. But if you're working without money and you're just, you know, working a job to pay your bills and you're a writer, you ain't going anywhere unless you, unless you learn how to do art. So for two years, I drew my own comic. It was called Necromancy, A Dark Romance. I, I was obsessed with it. I was working a job. I had just moved to California. I was still trying to go to every con I could, trying to get my name out there as a writer. And I realized all of these artists I'm working with are flaking out on me. I'm never going to get anything done, so I'm just going to sit down and draw the damn comic myself. Now, I did okay. I did this book that was about 94 pages long. It took me two years to do it. And it was called Necromancy. And um, I got some people gave me real good feedback on it. So because I took it to the cons, you know, I talked to Kelly Jones, one of my heroes. He was like, great inking, man. But, you know, I knew the penciling sucked. But, you know, I did the penciling, the inking and the writing. And so Mark Smiley at Archaia, I gave him a copy of it. And he was like, yeah, I really like your, your writing, you know. So basically the, the feedback that I got from doing my own independent comic was, hey, the writing is great. But no one ever said, hey, the art is great. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I, I, it took me these two or three years to figure out you're not an artist. And it's going to take you 10 more years of trying to be an artist before you even get close to being professional level with your art. However, your writing is already there. So focus on that. I did get really, really lucky, though, because I still kept looking for artists to work with. But when I, when I came up with the idea for Primordia, which I call a Stone Age fairy tale, I wanted to draw it myself. And I wanted to channel Gil Kane. I wanted to channel all these great artists. But it just wasn't, it was so time consuming. I mean, it takes, it takes me so long to do one page. And, and I wasn't consistent. That's what separates the pro artists from the non-pro artists. Pro artists, every page is consistent quality. Non-pro artists, you get bad panels, you get flawed pages and so on. So I hooked up with Rule Walinga, whom I had met at the Chicago Con and, um, I really loved his work on a comic called Seventh System. And I, and Roll had been out of comics for five or six years at the time. And I said, I've got this idea for, for this Primordia book. What do you think about it? And it was just a blind shot in the dark. And he said, I love your idea. I really want to get back into comics. Let's do it. So we decided we were going to do Primordia as a 96 page graphic novel. And we were going to just, you know, just do it and then find a publisher for it. So over the next 12 months, in his spare time, Roll drew from my, my full script. He drew the book. And I ran into Mark Smiley again at, uh, at a convention. Now, I had met Roll and Mark at the same Chicago convention back when they were working for Serious Comics. Mark Smiley is the creator and, and uh, illustrator of Artesia, a really great comic. Item. And Mark had branched off to start his own comic company, Archaia. And when I, when I told Mark that I was working with Roll... Mark remembered Roll from when they were both at Sirius. And he was like, hey, anything Roll's doing, I'm interested in. So Mark said, I want to publish Primordial. So basically, it was, again, it's all who you know. It's networking. It's sticking with it. And it's realizing where your strengths are. Some people just aren't ready for comic art. And they never, no one's going to tell them that, except for when they go to these portfolio reviews at the con. 
the editors will sit down and tell you why you're not ready, you know, as a, as an artist. And that really, a lot of artists can't get past that. The good ones, they go home and they internalize it and they make their art better and they come back next year and they maybe get a job. But with me as a writer, I, I you know, as a writer without art skills, you're at a very distinct disadvantage. But if you can team up with a good artist and you can create something cool, you'll find somebody to publish it. And these days you can just publish your own. So I hooked up with Arkaya through Mark Smiley, who was a fan of Roll's work and my work in indie work. And um, it took he decided to go ahead and hire a colorist for the book, which made it even better. And then he eventually published um, Primordia. Now, it's a long story, but his 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 company was bought away from him at a certain point. So the collected hardcover edition of Primordia was delayed by like five years. By the time it came out, everyone had forgotten about it. But you can find the hardcover edition of Primordia still online, uh, like at Amazon.com. And, you know, because of Primordia, I was able to get two assignments working for Mark Wade at Boom Comics when he was over there doing the editor-in-chief job. Um, he hired me to do an eight-page Cthulhu tale story and an eight-page zombie tale story. And I was like, yes, finally I'm getting some traction. Mark Wade, one of the greatest names in comics, paid me to write two eight-page scripts. So, you know, and I saw Mark at the con, and I was like, Hey, just really want to keep working. And he was like, yeah, we'll do more of these. Well, this is how my life works. Mark then quits Boom Studios, goes back to working full-time as a writer. There goes my contact with Boom. And this was about 2008 when the Great Recession hits. So everybody in comics is really struggling to get the assignments. The new people like me who were just getting in are just, you know, we're kicked out again, basically. Because we don't have any rep at this point. So I did the two scripts for Mark. And I thought that would lead to more scripts, you know, but it didn't. And I'm okay with that now because what happened was I came back from that comics experience realizing that comics is a very cruel industry to be in. It pays for shit. You get no respect. You don't, you don't get respect as a comics creator. Only from Comic Con crowds do you get respect there and very little at that if you don't work for Marvel or DC. And I really love comics even more because of this because comics are created for the love. If people didn't love comics, they wouldn't be working, you know. And so that inspired me to say, okay, fuck comics. I'm going to write novels, you know, and I don't need an artist to write a novel. And I'm going to be a novelist. And so luckily I have no life. So I was able to channel my, you know, my whole activity into getting a good novel, getting an agent, and you know the rest. So getting into comics was even harder than getting into being a novelist. I swear to God, I'm not kidding you. Unless you're an artist, Getting into comics is like breaking into Fort Knox. You know, it's it's tough as hell. Who would you? Um, I gotta ask the the standard question: Is there any other authors that write within the genre that uh, you're a huge fan of? Uh, in the grim dark genre, um, I am a huge, huge, huge fan of um, R. Scott Baker. Which yes. thanks to your yes. thanks to your um, thanks to your podcast, I now know is not pronounced Backer. That's what I used to call it <laughs> years. So, so thank you for that. I'm a huge fan of Baker's work. And um, let's see, I think it was about 2005 when I first read The Darkness That Comes Before and just blew me away, utterly blew me away. And I'm so I'm so pissed about not being able to read The Unholy Console, his latest book. It's so it's so overdue. Everyone's worried about George R. R. Martin's overdue books. And I'm like, no, no, no. Where's my back? Where's my Baker? Where's my Baker? My other big grimdark favorite author is, of course, George Martin. And I was a late adapter to his books. You know, everybody kept saying how great they are. And I was like, eh, they can't be that great, you know. And eventually, right around two, 
after I had burned through um, Backer's trilogy, I was looking for something else to read around 2007 or so. And I picked up uh, Game of Thrones and I became obsessed with finding the, all the books. You know, I was driving around. I was living in San Jose at the time. A year or two before the show started on HBO. So I was like, I got into it when it was still, you know, when it wasn't a big fad. <laughs> you got lucky then. Yeah. <laughs> and I like Because uh, I had to wait years and years and years and, oh, uh, when's the next book going to come out? Yeah, I know. And that, now that's what I'm doing with Baker or Baker. I'm like, come on, where's that other, where's that next book? You know, but, um, and then I'm not really, I'm not really sure if some of my other favorite authors fall into the grimdark. Uh, genre, but I think Daryl Schweitzer's fantasy work definitely falls in there. Um, he's one of my favorite writers. Tanith Lee is another favorite, and I and I think she's written more than enough fantasies that would fall into the grimdark category. But grimdark itself is such a new term that some of the older writers aren't being recognized. I think as grimdark, but they should be. Like I saw uh, I saw an article a few like a month or two ago about Clark Ashton Smith being considered grimdark. And that is so true, so very true. Uh, he's one of my all-time favorite writers as well. Now, you've got a, an article coming up from Grimdark Magazine, is that right? Yeah, i got an article in Grimdark number four. It's called The Mud, the Blood, and the Years, Why Grimdark is the New Sword and Sorcery. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking back at the history of sword and sorcery, and um, my, my basic thesis for the article is that what used to be called sword and sorcery is now being called grimdark. And that whole genre has evolved. Uh, and a few years ago, me and my friends from Blackgate were talking about the new sword and sorcery, you know, and, and names like Baker and Abercrombie were coming up, you know, and Martin. And now people don't really use the term sword and sorcery anymore. That's a dated term. Well, if you're talking about that stuff, today's version of that stuff, it's grimdark. And I just had this epiphany about that. And I said, this is, this is, this is something that I just, kind of my head exploded and I was like, Oh, so what used to, what would have been called sword and sorcery if it was written 20 years ago is now being called grimdark. So I, I um, said something about that online and, and Adrian Collins asked me about doing an article about it. And I was like, sure. So that's appearing in grimdark number four and it will trace sword and sorcery all the way from its Genesis at Robert E. Howard in the twenties pages of weird tales all the way up to today. And the authors who are, who are doing something new with sword and sorcery, and that something new, I think, is grimdark. Yeah, that sounds excellent. And you have a, another excerpt from uh, The Testament of Tall Eagle coming out in that issue as well. Is that right? Um, it'll be on the Grimdark website on July 1st. So right now, you can read the entire first chapter of Tall Eagle at blackgate.com. And you can read on June 1st an excerpt from Chapter 4 of Tall Eagle, but a little bit deeper into the book. And so that'll be on the Grimdark website, the excerpt. Okay, great. And then uh, June 8th is the official release date for The Testament of Tall Eagle. And uh, I know it's hard to kind of look into the future, but what other projects do you have on the horizon at this point? Um, thanks for asking. Um, right now I'm, I'm working on a new novel that I plan to dive full speed into in about two weeks because my teaching year ends in about two weeks. I'm about three chapters into this new book, and um, usually when summer hits, I do what's called pull the ripcord and I dive in and I, you know, I don't have any other responsibilities for two months so I can really crank out the chapters. So I'm planning on finishing this book that I'm writing right now. It doesn't have a title yet, but it is more what I call a weird fantasy. I had this story called the key to your heart is made of brass, which appeared in year's best fantasy, you know, year's best weird fiction volume one. Farfetch fables podcast is doing an audio adaptation of the key to your heart is made of brass. 
And this novel that I'm writing now is set in that universe, which is a strange, it's quite, sort of a blend. It's kind of a blend of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror all together. It will definitely be grim and dark, um, but it will be more on the weird side than anything else. So that's what I'm working on now, my, my big weird novel, I like to call it. Definitely sounds exciting. Any more short fiction on the horizon for you? Um, I do have a, a sword and sorcery tale that was supposed to be coming up in the next issue of Weird Tales, but that magazine has kind of been very intermittent in the past few years since it came under new management. So I don't even know if there will be a new issue of Weird Tales, but I'm supposed to have a story in the new issue if it, if it happens. I always post anything on uh, johnrfoltz.com. So I like to keep it. And also I'll do my Facebook thing and all that. But I try to um, I try to shout it out, you know, whenever something pops up out there. So JohnRFaults.com is where people can find you online. You're also on Facebook. Are you on Twitter as well? Yeah, that will be at John R. Fultz. And Fultz is F-U-L-T-Z. So I know it's a weird name. But when I, when I first uh, signed with Orbit, my editor was like, so do you want to use your real name? And I was like, have you ever heard of another author named Fultz ever? And he was like, <laughs> no. And I said, I think I'll keep my name. Because you never, I've never seen in my entire life another book with the name Fultz on the byline. I never have. Maybe I will someday, but I thought, hey, I'll be the only Fultz on the book rack. Who knows? Maybe uh, maybe it's a terrible name for selling books, but you know, it's the only one I got, so I decided to keep it. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program tonight. It's been great speaking with you. Uh, best of luck with the release of The Testament of Tall Eagle coming out June 8th, and uh, best of success for you in the future, John. Thanks so much, guys. It's been a blast. I'll be looking forward to your future episodes. Excellent. We're glad to have uh, fans and listeners as well, and uh, we thank you so much for uh, being on the program today. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want to uh, find out more about the show or chime in online, uh, check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast. Uh, always glad to get uh, feedback uh, on our iTunes page, or you can find us on Stitcher as well. Philip and Ross, thanks again for hanging out tonight. Hey, no problem, John. It was nice talking with you. Uh, I mean, best of luck to you. Thanks, man. Uh, uh, same. It was great. Yeah, thank you very much. It, I always like to hear from writers that can give us insight into the business and the writing process and stuff. So I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom. Hey, no problem. Uh, the hard part is getting me to stop talking. <laughs> well, you've been listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Until next time, stay grim, stay dark, stay true. We'll see you next time. Okay. Do the Black Sabbath. Oh. <laughs>